Innocent until proven guilty. That's the foundation of our legal system. I think we're all familiar with it. But it isn't really very close to everyday life, is it? Because essentially, what it's saying is, well, I'll believe you until I've got a reason not to. Is that how we work? Is that how rational thinking people work? No. I say, you want me to trust you? Prove it. Give me a reason. Think about advertising. Like the BMW, new car, they stick it on a kind of windy highway, beautiful vistas everywhere, but that's not enough. At the end, they'll say, as recommended by the witch guide. Someone else has taken it, someone else has seen it, and they've said, yes, it's as good as they say it is. What about pharmaceutical companies? I was talking about it with David before, he's working for them, he's making you buy their drugs, apparently, in an illegal sense. Apparently it takes nine years minimum to get it from research and development onto the market. Why? Because we don't just want to take their word for it. We want it to be tested. We want it to be proven. We want it to do what they say it will. And then an obvious one, job interviews. Maybe we've done an interview, maybe we've all been in them. You don't just take someone's word for it. You don't just grab them off the street and say, here you go, have my job. No. You check references. You see what, what accreditation they've got. If you're, doing, if you're a teacher like I used to be, you do an observed lesson. Does what they say match up to reality? Does what they say stack up? Now, if that's the case, then what we have in front of us is wonderful. Because here we have a test. Here we have a test of whether Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And in doing so, it displays what that means. And it also shows why we so desperately need him. We need Jesus to be the son of God. To do what we cannot do. Uh, let me explain. I suppose that the temptation when we come to a passage like this. If you'll excuse the pun. Is to make it all about us. I could create a very easy three step guide. You know, a nice glossy book. Call it Taking Down Temptation with James Williams. I put my face on it, bright white teeth. I'll make you the best you can be. Just follow these three steps. You do what Jesus does, you'll make it. What's well, rubbish? That's not at all what this is about. Yes, Matthew is showing us the way to overcome temptation, the way to overcome sin, the way to overcome death, but his name is Jesus Christ. He is the son of God, the perfectly obedient, faithful king. So right from the off, we need to get that clear. We can't do this. And by this, I mean, if your intention is just to imitate Jesus. If you just want to see him as a good teacher or a prophet or a nice example. But not trust in his life and his death for us. Then you're missing the point completely. And I really graciously just want to plead with you to say, look at this. Look at God's word. Look at what Jesus says about himself. Let's, let's get down into it. We've been working through, as Andy said, through Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And so far, he's been showing us that while Jesus does identify with us through his birth, what we saw in chapter 1, through his baptism we saw a few weeks ago, and, and here in his temptations... Matthew's made it very clear that he's so much more than just any normal man. Matthew's done this in a number of ways. He did it by spelling out Jesus' credentials. 
We saw uh, his kind of credibility, his pedigree through the genealogies in chapter 1. Jesus is this promised king. He's what the Old Testament was pointing to. He's the greater Abraham, the true Israel. Then we got to chapter 2. We looked at what it means to be God's people. And in chapter 3, John the Baptist came. Who taught about a new people baptised in the Spirit. And as he did this, as Michael read for us, we heard God's affirmation. This is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. God is essentially signing off on the start of Jesus' public ministry. And then he leads him into the desert. Did we notice that in verse 1? It's God's will for this to happen. This is how God always intended Jesus' public ministry to begin. Not with miracles, not with crowds, not with fanfare at this point. But alone, struggling and hungry. So let's look at these temptations. Look at the first one. In verse 3, the tempter, who we later is referred to as Satan, his first question, if you are the son. Now, that's a strange way to begin, because he knows who he is. So what's he playing at? He knows that Jesus is the perfect son of the father. So I think what he must be doing is is assaulting what it means to be the son. He's attacking the relationship. He's saying, it's more like him saying, since you are the son. And then the question's got to be, well, will Jesus, in this weakened, hungry state, decide to put his own desire before the Father's will? Will Jesus let the current circumstances he finds himself in question God? Will Satan be able to drive a wedge between the Son and the Father? What does he say? He says in verse 3, tell these stones to become bread. Now clearly you and I, we couldn't do this. But if you read on in the gospel, bread creation is well within the repertoire of Jesus. He's got that covered. He does it easily. It's effortless when he's glorifying the Father. When it's working towards serving his mission towards the cross. But but what about now? Maybe it would help if we could kind of get into the mindset of, of this level of hunger. When I think about this, it makes me think of those old Tom and Jerry cartoons. You know, they'd always end up on like a desert island somewhere. Tom would be really hungry and suddenly Jerry would appear like a chicken on a platter. It's that kind of level of hunger. It's not just a peckish thing like we're used to. Jesus has been there 40 days. This is starvation. This is, uh, realistically, you could die. I don't know about you, I, I expect I'm not alone in this. I'm quite grouchy if I miss a meal or two. I'd have definitely given in. We all would, wouldn't we? Well, because it seems reasonable. It's a pragmatic thing to do. It's not going to hurt anyone else, so why not? And he can do it. It's my decision to make after all, so surely there's no point in suffering if it's avoidable. It's probably good I'm not Jesus in this case. In fact, this reminded me uh, of a time before I started my apprenticeship here. One of the elders from the church I was having dinner with, and he said his only concern for young guys going into ministry was when they'd never really suffered. It wasn't kind of the motivational pep talk I was looking for. But you know, over the last couple of years, I really think I've begun to understand what he was meaning. Because for many of us, if you're anything like me, I grew up in a Christian home, you went on camps, led the youth work, all the time having people saying, well done, what a great job, you've done really well. 
You never really have to do anything you don't want to do. Isn't this the case for lots of us in Earlsfield? You know, we pray about people on the other side of the world who are in terrible situations, but for us, look around. Church is a loving family. We're surrounded by credible people, both socially, intellectually. Obedience might never look like suffering. I think that's an incredibly dangerous position for many of us. Because when the choice is put before us of God's will or what I want to do, which way will we choose? The Bible is clear. When we choose death to our own self-interest and say yes to Jesus, we grow. And I'm not saying we should be resentful of when God is generous to us. It should orientate our hearts to give him praise and glory when that happens. But are we prepared? Are we ready for when we have to say no to something that we want to do? Maybe at work, maybe in a relationship. Will we choose God's way? Because the Bible is very clear. God's way is always the right way. And I can't guarantee that I will always choose the right way. So again, I'm so thankful that Jesus isn't like me. Aren't we all thankful that to Jesus this choice seems so obvious? Verse 4, he quotes Deuteronomy 8. He says, man shall not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Jesus is presented with a choice between obeying God's will and doing what he wants... God always wins. He trusts in God's provision completely. If you read through the rest of the gospel, it would be a wonderful thing to do tonight. You'll see that it means more to Jesus than life itself. So that's the first temptation. And Jesus shows that, unlike us, Jesus, the Son of God, obeys the Father's will at any cost. But it doesn't stop there. So the devil tries again. What's he going to go for this time? Verses 5 to 7. We have this kind of image of Jesus standing on top of a temple. I doubt that that's a coincidence, but he's hanging over an enormous drop. I suppose it's another case in point that's probably not about me and you. The devil says, verse 6, if you are the son of God, just throw yourself down. And what does he do then? He quotes Psalm 91. He says, he, that, that is God, will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. He's basically saying, jump. If you're hurt, you're either not the son of God or God's let you down. Put God to the test. See how it goes. It's a clever ploy. Because if the previous attacks show that Jesus trusted the Father to supply, well now Satan's saying, let's put that assurance to the test. After all, you're the son of God. Look at what the word says. But Jesus perfectly demonstrates what real faith in Father's word looks like. Firstly, notice he doesn't just rebuke him. He doesn't just say, you've misquoted it, you've taken this out. But he does question his use of it. Because what Satan's done is he's ripped it out of its context to serve his own purpose. If anyone asks us how to interpret the Bible, I think if you say, like Jesus does, you're on quite safe ground. Letting scripture explain scripture. It's a reminder that just quoting the Bible doesn't make something biblical. Look at what he does, verse 7. If you read with me, Jesus answers by quoting from a previous test. But what I mean by that is he quotes from when Israel 
God's people were brought out of Egypt and tested for 40 years. And in a sense, the shadow of this bit of Israel's history looms over the whole passage. Jesus is repeatedly quoting for Deuteronomy 8. But this time speaks of a new exodus. A new voice in the wilderness that calls people to himself. And this time, where those of us in the overview have seen Israel fail and fail, Jesus succeeds. Maybe it's helpful to briefly put this into context. So we're in the desert. The Israelites are not trusted in God's word. They're not trusting his continued provision. So they just moan and grumble. They do it all the time. But God, he graciously allows Moses to bring water for them. A rock was struck and the people's need was met completely. But if you read that passage, it's clear that this was not a good thing. God is not to be manipulated. God is not just to be rolled out when we need something. But if anything, I think this passage in Matthew 4 seems worse than their grumbling because it's just plain stupid. He's asking Jesus to deliberately put himself in danger. Pointlessly. Just to manipulate God into action. At least the Israelites were actually thirsty. You know, deserts are hot. I imagine walk, you know, walking along for 40 years is, is tiring work. Who would want a God who could be dictated to like this? But we're like this, aren't we, sometimes? Which is why we need Jesus not to make... And by that, I mean, many of us, in a sense, we do court danger. And we just expect God to sort it out. How often do we try to walk as close to the line as possible? You know, if you can't get into that relationship, why put yourself in that situation? If the temptation is there to click those websites late at night, what do you expect to happen? But we do this. We court danger, and though we may not do it as overtly as this, for many of us there is always a temptation to use God's word for our own purposes. Notice the devil doesn't misquote, he doesn't change words. But he changes the purpose. He makes it suit his own needs. Maybe we just pick the bits that work for us, the bits that justify our decision at this time. How much do we need someone who'd refuse to do this every time? Verse 7, do not put your Lord God to the test. How much do we need one who is always faithful to God's word? Now, whether you want Jesus or not, surely a state of our own hearts show how much we need him. Because only a Jesus that is completely faithful, constantly, forever faithful to God's word is good enough. Because we can't be. So that's two down. What's he going to do next? The devil has one last attempt. And this is subtlety out of the window. Imagine it, it's kind of Jesus giving a kind of an IMAX image of the world. It's huge. Imagine it like a big mountaintop, a view reaching to every horizon. And all the great kingdoms of the earth are there. All the glory, all the splendor, all the praise that the world can offer. And it's like a kind of Faustian pact. On the table, a mighty empire, the like of which the world has never seen. I suppose in many ways this might have been the type of king Israel was expecting. There's a bit of a sickening irony that this aligns them with the heart of Satan here. I suppose there is a danger as well. I was thinking from when I knew this as a child and we had it at Sunday school. Do we actually belittle how hard this is? How tempting this is? Do we even think that it is tempting to Jesus? Because imagine Jesus could have replaced Herod. 
Jesus could have replaced Caesar. He could have ruled with justice and brought an age of peace, not being mocked, not being dejected, not being the outsider, alone in the desert. That certainly seems tempting. But what's the cost? Verse 9. All this I will give to you. If you just bow down to me. Just compromise a little bit. Surely the end justifies the means. And even more Jesus. I'm offering you the crown. Without having to go to the cross. If this was 40 days of Jesus preparing for his ministry. It must have meant 40 days contemplating the cross. Because that's what he knows he's going towards. Satan is essentially saying, I have another way. All you need to do is bow down to me. If the first two temptations are evil by context, this is overt. Though I suppose, in a sense, they're all the same. They're all breaking the first commandment. It's all swap God for me. But the horror of this one is so clear in Jesus' response in verse 10. Away from me, Satan. So please don't think this is easy. Don't imagine either that this is an end to the temptation. I really think that in my mind I struggle to grasp with the idea of a perfect life. I can understand like a perfect few minutes, maybe an hour at a push, but a flawless, perfect life. I think our lives are a bit like quitting a marathon at the kind of the one mile mark. A little bit pathetic. Let's not be so arrogant to think that it would get easier as we got further along. Think forward to Gethsemane. Think forward to Jesus' final hours before the cross. Once more, Jesus retreats. He spends time alone with his Father and he prays. If it be possible, let this pass from me. But twice, Jesus cries out, not my will, but yours be done. If there were any other way, do you not think Jesus would have wanted to take it? Or when hanging on the cross itself. Imagine the crowd jeering, jeering for him to call angels to his rescue. Do we not think that was a genuine option? So why, why can't Jesus just take the easy way? He can't take it. Because he's the perfectly obedient son of God. He is the perfectly faithful son and because we need the cross. He can't take the easy way because we need more than just a model. We need more than just a perfect life of faithful obedience. We need his obedience. We need his faithfulness to be taken to a wooden cross and have the life squeezed out of it for us. We need this because you and I can't defeat temptation. We can't obey. Look at the world around us and if you're honest, examine your own heart. We're incapable of defeating this problem of sin. It's the problem that stalked humanity since the corruption of Adam. We read about it really right at the beginning of our Bible overview. Ever since the first Adam was tempted in the garden and by his failure brought death. We've needed this second Adam to stand in the desert and through his victory bring us life. We can't do it. But we can defeat temptation. We do it by being filled by Jesus. By being filled by his spirit. Being filled by the one who defeated temptation for us. 
Only then can any of this be an example or a model for us. Only if we put our faith into Jesus. I don't want this to be a downer. This is wonderful news. It's incredible. It brings us assurance. It's certainty. A certain victory. I don't have to worry whether I've done enough time and time again. Uh, sleepless nights thinking, have I earned it? Uh, you know, do the good and bad balance out in my life? No, it's certainty because in Jesus they do. And it brings us comfort. There's a comfort in knowing that the victory was won for us by a God who intimately and personally knows our suffering. Who bears the marks of our suffering on his body. Can you imagine anything more wonderful? You know, when you're trying to obey, when you're really struggling, when you're battling with temptation, to know that Jesus has been there before you and is there with you now. Uh, Martin Luther was once asked by a student, how do you deal with temptation? And he said, when the devil comes knocking upon the door of my heart, the Lord Jesus goes to the door and he says, Martin Luther used to live here. But he's moved out. Now I live here and I alone. That's how we defeat temptation. And it's the only way we can defeat temptation. By believing that Jesus Christ is the obedient, the faithful son of God. Who defeated temptation once and for all. And did it for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you that in your son, all the failures of us, all the times we give in to temptation, all the times we sin, were born on the cross. We thank you that you showed our love for us in punishing him in our place. We pray that you'll move our hearts to, to glorify your son. In response to this incredible work, you'll motivate us to fight temptation. But you'll also move us to just marvel at how wonderful this work is. To glorify the perfect life that your son lived for us. I pray that as we go. This won't just be an idea or a concept. But it will be a truth that rings loud in our hearts. And shines out of our lives. I pray all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen.